This episode of Field to Fork was produced as part of the Seattle Good Business Network's Good Food Economy Program and supported by PCC Community Markets with 16 neighborhood stores around the Puget Sound region. October is member month at PCC with special events and deals to thank the co-op's 113,000 active members and celebrate the shared passions of food and community. Learn more at pccmarkets.com slash membership. This is the Field to Fork podcast, where we take you on a deep dive into the local food economy of the Puget Sound region, from farming operations to fine dining and everywhere in between, going to the source to find out how food comes to be and gets to you, direct from the people making it happen. I'm your host, Keith Bacon, and with me is my co-host, Becky Selengut. Hi, Becky. Hey, what's up, Keith? Uh, welcome back. Well, thank you. I missed you up in Bellingham. Have you listened to uh, the episode that I did without you about the Bellingham Dockside Market? I did. And actually, when I was listening to it, um, and you were like, hey, Becky. And I was like, wait, what is he going to do? Is he going to like, <laughs> put, you going to put my voice in there? And then it gotcha. was like, Becky, where are you? Becky's gotcha of journalism. You, you totally got me on that one. <laughs> well, uh, it was really fun celebrating uh, your return to the land. Uh, the other night when we went out to dinner and drinks with our respective partners at Jude's in Rainier Beach and had a really lovely evening at this very interesting neighborhood haunt, I guess. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> and um, we had a chance to talk with one of the co-owners, Mark Paschal, about what makes Jude's unique both in its offerings and its organization. And let's listen to that interview right now. Thanks for being with us today, Mark. My pleasure. It's a fantastic experience for me to be here with you all. So you helped open Jude's. What was it like in the beginning? I joined Jude's back in 2016. Bo, who owns Lottie's in Columbia City, he lived a little bit closer to Rainier Beach than he did Columbia City. He wanted to open a place in Rainier Beach. So he opened the Cajun Creole restaurant. It wasn't going particularly well. I moved back to Seattle. I lived on the South side. I was finishing a PhD. I had a small kid. I just needed a place to go work. So I had just been looking to pick up two shifts. He was looking for someone to really take over the bar and give it some Mm -hmm. direction. My wife pointed out that my ideas tend to come through. I have a very strong viewpoint. So rather than just waiting to take over the bar in time (laughs) i just might as well start uh right away so i got to meet some of the regulars and then really dive into bartending in washington i grew up in what's now sammamish but learned to bartend elsewhere so i started in 2016 it was very slow at first ton vin came in one night and had a really nice experience and wrote a really good review for us and that kind of picked up the process a lot of the foundation type of work that we were doing and consistency and quality and sort of looking to use local ingredients when they were in season as a foundation for cocktails and flavor profiles, sort of like really working to develop. And then by 2018, I'd kind of done everything I thought that I could as Jude's was at that point. I became a rep for a vermouth company. Mancino, mm-hmm. one of the co-owners of the importing company, lived in Rainier Beach, and we had become friends when I was doing a vermouth tasting night at Jude's. So I did that and eventually started working with Sprezza, which is a collaboration between Mancino and Scrappy's Bitters. And Scrappy's mm-hmm. thought that I was doing good work, so I started repping Scrappy's as well. 
love scrappies. Oh, we love scrappies. Yeah. <laughs> scrappies is a really delightful product. I try not to use the black lemon bitters in everything that I do. And I'm, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I can be successful at times. So throughout 2019, I worked at Sawyer out in Ballard and then was a mm. rep for these companies. In September of 2019, a number of regular bar patrons as well as old co-workers reached out to me being like, hey, Mm-hmm. This is for sale. Any chance that we could get you back down here? Uh, so I talked about it with Leith, who was I was working for the Vermouth Company. He also lived in Rainier Beach. And we had talked about having a bar at some point, but specializing in cocktails. And we're like, yeah, I think that we can make that happen. So we got the pleasure of going in January 1st, 2020. And <laughs> it's such an awesome, you know, it's like, dun, dun, dun. Yeah, good times. <laughs> you can't even say that with a straight face without just going like, ah. Yeah, like the whole world is open for you, your dreams, your yes. ambitions. Yes. By the way, nothing you thought that was going to happen will happen, which is a useful yes. reminder because that's pretty much always how it goes. It just doesn't generally happen at a societal level all at once. Very true. Right. Uh, so we had gone in and we weren't going to have a uh, phone. We weren't going to have any apps or anything like that. We're both sort of old school and that uh, the experience of the customer is like the primary thing. We want to be a neighborhood bar. We don't want to be pretentious mm-hmm. or anything like that. Not that there's anything wrong with being pretentious. A lot of fantastic things can happen in food and beverage when people are pretentious. So it's not a slight on anything <laughs> like that. It's just like we want to be a place where relationships are the things that matter. Um, and then everything else kind of spools outward from that. Oh, we rapidly got a cell phone and we rapidly got apps and we became a place where deliveries happened and mm. all that horrible story that everyone who was able to stay around during the pandemic had to pivot to. Yeah, the great pandemic pivot. <laughs> so much pivoting uh, from right foot <laughs> to left foot <laughs> back and forth. So much so that I don't even like using the word pivot at all ever again. <laughs> because it's like it only to me is a pandemic word now. <laughs> Outside of basketball, there's probably not much use for a pivot foot there. <laughs> uh, no, I just turned around on one foot. It's a lot more words, but <laughs> as our cocktail menu shows, I've never been afraid of words. So, <laughs> <laughs> and in the midst of this pandemic pivot, is that where the idea to become a co-op restaurant first came to be? Yeah, I've dreamed of that for a long time, and. Having never owned a business and never really been involved in any ownership decisions, I had always thought like, yeah, that's probably like 10 years away. Like you have to build up a name and capital, neither mm-hmm. of which I had, especially in Seattle at that time. Leith moved to Cleelum and he's like, yeah, now if you want to buy me out, then you could become a worker on co-op or do profit sharing or whatever the things that made the most sense for you. And I was like, Oh my God, I had no idea that the timeline could be accelerated like that. That's Here it is. so delightful. <laughs> so we presented the idea to the staff at the time. But most people that you'll just meet out in everyday life have no idea the role that co-ops play in allowing the life that we live to happen in the first place. People don't realize necessarily yeah. that Dairy Gold and the big cranberry co-ops and all the farm co-ops, like the economy would just collapse without co-ops largely they're like family co-ops uh not worker they're like farm owner or like small parcel farmers and so people didn't really have much of an idea about what a worker-owned co-op would be so presented the ideas i'm either the small business entrepreneur slash god and whatever i say goes <laughs> number two we can do profit sharing and uh, 
will try to be democratic, but at the end of the day, it's my name on it. So I, everything has to go through me. Or we can try to be yeah. a full-on worker co-op where we all collectively make the decisions. We all collectively make ourselves better than we are, which is what happens in any business anyway. Just the boss generally reaps the rewards for those. Um, so we took some time and then decided, let's go worker own co-op. Let's see what happens. That's so I love cool. It. It's really, really cool. Yeah. I mean, I'm pretty much a socialist uh, at heart, democratic socialist co-ops are in my my blood and uh, having worked in the restaurant industry for most of my career uh, back of the house this idea is so fascinating to me and I'm just so curious to know kind of the nuts and bolts I, I tell you my background first and what my political leadings are because when I ask some of these questions I don't want you to think I'm doing the well yeah like how is that going to work you know I'm actually just more genuinely curious about how you solve certain problems in this uh, environment when most of the restaurant experience I have is run so differently so uh wanted to just kind of like you know talk brass tacks about like you know okay so a worker is not carrying their weight in your restaurant a worker owner they clear half the table they don't clear the other half the table they walk away they let the bartender pick up their slack, they're on the phone. Without a manager, how do you handle those kinds of situations in your restaurant? The first thing I generally say is in a systematic exploitation of workers by bosses and by owners. As a worker, that's the natural response. And that has been the natural response since people have been forced off of communally or collectively held land and put into places where you have no other option but to work in order to live. Uh, and that's one of the, the dozens of ways that workers have to sort of rebel against that or reclaim some form of autonomy within a world in which they have no other choice but to work. Otherwise, you're on the streets and you're eating or not eating. So in general, people like to do a good job. Can't say always for every single person, but in general, people want to present themselves well and want to enjoy the experience of being at the place where they're at the most. And for most of us, work is where you're at the most and you want that experience to be a better one than not. Usually when people aren't doing everything that you would necessarily hope for, it's not maliciousness and it's not laziness. It's just, just not necessarily knowing sort of like the things that go on. So no, I have never seen someone any job I've ever had, just clear half a table and then be like, ah, and then just <laughs> leave. In any restaurant, you're always relying on the other people around you, regardless. Like in the classic way that people make money in restaurants through tips, if your section looks like trash, people aren't going to want to tip you very much. If your tables aren't cleaned, people aren't going to be as interested in like giving you 20 or 30% of their meal. So we always rely on other people. So when those, there are those cases where people don't do the job that is necessarily expected, it's like, well, let's talk about it. And it will be presented either by one or two people or we'll have a meeting where it's like, all right, let's make sure that the standards for what we want are clear. You can't hold people to a standard that's unclear. So let's just yeah. establish or reestablish the things that we look for and the ways that we help each other be better collectively. Uh, one of the other things is everyone gets paid the same. In most restaurants, you have a very clear hierarchy in who gets paid and who doesn't get paid. In some places, it'll be the bartenders. Some places, it'll be the waiter, the servers, the waitstaff. Um, they get paid just substantially more than people in the back of house. And then people who enter in, they'll be on the lower end of the spectrum, so they won't get the good shifts necessarily. 
Uh, but for us, everything is a reflection of everything else. And so we all get paid the same amount of, of money. Uh, people who have been there longer will make more. That's just a function of having been somewhere for longer. The pay structure, sure. we split tips exactly evenly based on the hours worked, not on the day's work, because a good night on Tuesday will lead someone to bring their friends on a Friday, and a great night on a Friday will mm. lead their people to want to come in on a Wednesday. So everything yeah. lends itself to the restaurant as a total. So if I might interject real quick, it sounds like you would present issues or problems collectively in a conversation, but it, in the kind of restaurant world that I'm used to, you know, things are like in the moment sometimes, like, you know, let's say the the bartender notices that tables being ignored, for example, and they, they can't get there because they're making too many drinks and they're seeing that someone's not necessarily holding their weight. Maybe they're a new employee, not yet a worker owner, not yet part of the fold. Like, is everybody empowered to communicate with each other in the spirit of, of the values that you're organization has such that they would pull someone aside and say, Hey, that table needs to be cleared. Do you mind doing it? And I'm not saying that as, you know, they're not a manager. They're just saying, Hey, we need to move these values forward. Is that more kind of the way that things get discussed and talked about? Absolutely. There, we try to do a lot of communicating on shift as well, because we don't have sections. We just kind of work together on Friday nights when we have the most people there, you'll have two people on the floor and one person behind the bar. So then it's just about communicating. All right, these people have just paid up or I brought these dishes back. And so if it seems like someone's not participating fully, we know that as it's happening because we're communicating constantly about what's happening. So mm -hmm. like, oh, Mark, there's these tables six and seven. We haven't gone over to see if they need anything else. And there's dishes piling up. Can you go handle that? I'm like, oh my God, yeah, mm -hmm. definitely. I'm on that right mm -hmm. away. Mm -hmm. So no one's afraid of talking to anyone else because we all want to be in this together if you got like a bad review in yelp i mean yelp is horrible but you know what i mean if you got a bad review somewhere would it just come up at a meeting somebody would say okay here we got this review let's talk about how we handle this feedback or situation like that i don't remember the last time i've been on yelp to look at our restaurant or google to look at our mm -hmm. restaurant but if there's a if it comes to our attention that there has been a really bad experience mm -hmm. uh, we generally will talk it through and be like, hey, what was going on for the people who were at work? Yeah. And then we can break it down like, oh, that person was a total nightmare. Like they made people in their own party yeah. cry. And then they, in the very <laughs> beginning, they were just terrible. Or they're like, yeah, yeah. oh, no, that was our that was our bad. They said they needed this and we couldn't provide it. Yeah, It just took like 45 minutes for the food to come out and we couldn't just, we just couldn't find a way to make it right. That's yeah. generally what we try to do in the experience is make things right as it goes generally yeah. want to show people that we're excited that you're here for us it's like yeah. a chance to experience an anarchic situation in which everything feels better than it did when you got there so like you leave the situation you're like i feel really great it doesn't always yeah. happen but that's sort of like the ambition that we kind of start with so if there is a situation where someone very clearly didn't have a good time and that was uh, we were at fault for that mm -hmm. we'll definitely reach out to that person and like like this is what was going on. I really apologize. Like that's not the, mm -hmm. what we want to do. And then for our own staff, it happens so rarely. They're usually one-off events. It's very rarely a situation where like, oh, we need to rethink how we do this. It's mm -hmm. like, all right, well, this mm -hmm. happened. I guess in mm -hmm. the future we'll try to look out for this or do the communicating mm -hmm. on the front end rather than the back end. So how do we grow from this mm -hmm. and like 
be better. But at the same time, because we're built on worker solidarity and we're built on what makes the restaurant right for us to be at first, what makes us enjoy being there, because we're going to be there much more than any customer. Like we want to know how, like how these things impact each of us first. So we're not like bending over and um, we're not letting someone's casual racism or sexism or whatever determine whether or not they give us a bad experience. It's like our experience is the primary experience. And we hope in that, that everyone else has a really fantastic experience. Mm -hmm. I think that this model is so interesting because it's based on honesty and communication, as you said. And yeah, you don't need to look at your Yelp reviews if you're all talking to each other and your teammates, your, your colleagues don't have to worry about being honest with each other about good and bad, you know, and like, you don't have to look to some outside third party ventagram, you know, mm-hmm. like, you know, if, if everyone practices that and lives up to the promise and the ideal of it. I love that. So like the dishwasher is like, you know, famously in restaurants, the most undervalued, usually monetarily, but one of the most important positions in the restaurant, I think every restaurant worker should do shift doing dishes so that they can appreciate and understand how important and crucial that job is. In your system where of worker owners, does everyone switch off who's doing dishes or do you actually have a, a person who that's their primary job? Everyone will do dishes. Yeah. I think it's a funny thing because it, it's economically such a devalued job, but if you're working in a, hopefully a more egalitarian system, a lot of people tend to find they love the dish pit because it mm-hmm. is a bit less like a sort of a reprieve from having to be on with customers, mm-hmm. it's a bit of a reprieve mm-hmm. from the stress of making sure everything is coming out at the same time. You're just like, you can just enter into a flow. Um, there are some people who, given the chance, that's the only thing that they would like to do mm-hmm. is the dish push it. And as you said, without someone to wash dishes, there's, mm-hmm. what are we eating on? In one of my restaurant jobs, we called it the dish palace because we wanted to elevate it out of the pit. Yeah. <laughs> Because I, I love doing shifts in the dish the dish palace because it really <laughs> it's less stressful for me, honestly, than oh, working yeah. on a line and, and doing anything else. It, it's a very concrete job. It's an important job. And you go home, you don't have to think about anything else. The dishes were clean. Um, the last thing I wanted to, to ask you is um, in a capitalist system, right, you, people are attracted to being servers based on the tip incentive. So you're, you're probably having to attract your servers for a different way of being in a restaurant, which is this collective worker owner. But have you found that it's a little bit hard sometimes to find those servers when you tell them that tips are shared equally? Yeah, it's one of the difficult things about doing this in Seattle. I'd say 98% of the people who come through our doors are absolutely thrilled about the model and are like, oh my God, that's so tremendous. And some people are like, we're so lucky to have something like this in Rainier Beach. And my own ambitions are for there to be a lot more places like this, especially in Rainier Beach and on the south side of Seattle, given the economic exploitation that's sort of roiling its way through the area. And it's a great way to keep all the money in the neighborhood, et cetera, et cetera. It's also very difficult to live in the city of Seattle if you're making around 30 to $33 per hour. So for people who can make $75, $80 per hour, a speed bartending shift somewhere else like to only take $30 an hour you're like ah I love the model love what you're doing I just can't afford my apartment making this amount of money 
generally the bartenders who are making that money aren't going off and buying boats and buying like Maseratis or things like that. It goes to food and supporting other people and whatnot. So I totally understand. But it's been hard to, there is some difficulty in finding um, people who want to be involved, who can find a way to make it work financially because people want to be involved in it from a, a idealistic standpoint and just like a feeling of being on the restaurant standpoint. So yeah, that's always evolving and it can sometimes take a long time to hire someone and sometimes right off the bat and you get lucky and sometimes people walk in and say, oh, my friend was telling me about this place. Are you hiring? And you're like, mm-hmm. no. And then the next day we're like, oh, yeah, yes, is what I meant to say. <laughs> On the customer level, I mean, are you getting a sense that people are aware of your business model and is it something that is actually bringing them in to check you out? Yeah. I wouldn't say it's um, always the most common thing for people, but on Tuesday night, mm-hmm. we had uh, some people who would come up from Los Angeles, not to come to Jude's, although one day, but who would come <laughs> up and they had been aware of who we were and they were like really excited to come in and try it. And just like, I can't believe that a place like this exists. Like, That's so fantastic. So we do get a number of people who come in who know that it's a co-op and are excited to try it. Um, there are other people who maybe just see the Google reviews or the Yelp reviews and want to give it a try. Even there, we try to foreground the fact that we're a co-op, but we we try to let people know over the course of the experience of dining with us or having drinks with us, like what we're about and why that's important and why their experience of being at the place is hopefully a special one. Well, I think another thing that might be bringing people in is your beverage program. Your cocktails are amazing. It's like one of the most creative cocktail menus I've seen in the city. Uh, We had a really good time working our way through some of it and can't wait to come back. Some of us had too good of a time. Yeah, no, no, no. Just (laughs) just the perfect amount of good time. So is that something that you developed? Is this also sort of a cooperative effort of your your drink menu? First off, that's so kind. Really appreciate that it's so nice um i i don't know why but i love cocktails it's like my philosophy of cocktails is sort of like cocktails are a bit anarchic and how they work there are sort of like some ratios that have held true for 150 years but in general you try to take really fantastic things bottles or ingredients they're great on their own and then you mix them with other people and they become greater than the sum of their parts Mm. And I think that there's very few things that are better than a well-made cocktail. You just like take four ingredients, spend a little bit of time. It takes a lot of experience to know sometimes the best ones to use, but then you present yeah. it and just see people's faces light up. And you're like, this is what happens when you bring people together. Like when you bring things together, you bring labor because the cocktails, like dozens to hundreds of people's labor producing itself in like one small glass but like a hundred people 200 people have worked on the whole experience of bringing that to you so that's one of the things i love about it we try to do what we can to bring as many people's interests in one of our guys josh he does a lot of fermenting he's got some hot sauces that will be available but he made a uh, dandelion wine and then half of it turned into vinegar so he's like, hey, can we use this? And we're like, yeah. <laughs> so we have a sweet lion and the dandy mom on the yeah. menu, which is like a yeah. figs are in season now. And figs with a little bit of that bitterness and sweetness mm-hmm. and like tartness, tanginess, that uh, dandelion vinegar. It's like, 
yeah, this is something that Josh made, and it's a really way to honor Josh's labor and the things that he does. Maybe earlier in the year, forged some spruce tips, and so we did some things with spruce tips. One who's not currently there at Jews but had been there before is like, it's smoky in Seattle. We're verging on the smoky season. We need hmm. a cocktail that sort of like says, yeah, smoke can be frustrating, but can also be wonderful. <laughs> How do we mix that? Is that, <laughs> so we have this, is that the smoky sound? Yeah, exactly. I enjoyed uh, that one last night. It That creme de cacao in there, that little chocolate note. It was so good. We try only to use bottles that we think are fantastic. And Tempest Fugit makes the best sweet liqueurs, like the banana and the chocolate, are phenomenal. Mm-hmm. We have a blackberry drink on the menu right now, which is blackberries from my backyard. And you pick like the hard red ones all the way to the super ripe purple ones, make a syrup out of that, put some black pepper in there. Once that's done, it's time for pumpkin season. So we'll probably do a pumpkin <laughs> egg white drink. An amaretto, sons of Vancouver up north, do the best amaretto I've ever had in my life. I don't think anything else really comes close. It's just like absolutely tremendous. Wow. If you have really great ingredients as your sort of like a playground, and then you bring in the seasonal, the things you can get at farmer's markets or at PCC or in our backyards or generally not on the side of the street, given the toxins that can be found there and whatnot. Those back alley blackberries, you have to be, you know, like always pick above dog pee level. That's right. Exactly. That's right. Exactly. I li- Mark, I live in Beacon Hill, and I'm, I'm going to be a new regular because those cocktails were amazing. I'm, mm-hmm. And I mean, just, Give me your hush puppies. Give me a cocktail. <laughs> I'm going to be really happy. I'm gonna we don't your need bar. stinking garlic. <laughs> no, we're going to talk about we're going to talk about politics and <laughs> capitalism and socialism. It's going to be fun. Mark, are there some locally produced spirits that you've been excited to work with recently? Yeah, so we're doing a cocktail for Restaurant Week's opening night kickoff on October 7th, and we're going to be using Estrella Gin. Uh, Straya's mm-hmm. woman, Danielle, she grew up in, this, in the area. Uh, she was telling me while talking to her that medicine was often things that they foraged and found and sort of built on long histories of people using the earth and its properties in order to heal themselves. She went away and became a master distiller in Scotland, came back to Seattle, and her gins are exceptional. There's a probably the most exciting time to be a gin drinker now outside of like the 1850s <laughs> but uh, <laughs> all of her gins i think are just like so perfectly balanced and have such a wonderful breadth of flavor and they all draw from specifically the salish sea area sometimes a bit broader for the whole pacific northwest but almost all of them mm-hmm. are really centered and placed in the salish sea area and then uh we'll be using senzafina they're uh, Amaro maker who are based out of Inner Bay. I highly recommend looking them up. They have a beautiful little space if you want to go try some Amaros. They come from the bartending world. And so they wanted to make things that were, again, based in Seattle. And there's such a wealth of amazing things here. For me, one of my things that I really love is when people try to take the world around them put their point of view on it, and then present that world. We have a drink called Particularities of Place on right now because there's a lot of really terrible things about the history of tiki. So you're like, is there anything mm-hmm. recoverable in it? It's the idea yeah. of like layering flavors, layering these incredible rums that come from all these different islands, each island having like sort of a 
broadly speaking, a characteristic to them. And you can like, all right, using these three rums, we can create a really incredible experience. And then for Kiki, it was using the produce of Southern California, putting that right. into a cocktail. Like, mm-hmm. It's like the particularities of a given place are what really come through. And using those particularities of a given place to make something really fantastic, I think is the recuperable part of Tiki for me. And so that's kind of what we look to try to do. And I look for people who are making liquor or making anything. It's like, how is what you're doing a reflection of who you are and the world that made you and the place that made you? That's awesome. Well, we will look for that special drink at In Good Company, the Seattle Restaurant Week preview event. And I should also mention Seattle Restaurant Week is October 22nd through November 4th. Uh, You all are participating in that as well. So everyone get out there and check it out, srweek.org. You also offer a monthly wine club. We do. Uh, Tell us a little bit about how that works. Yeah. So for $45, you'll get two bottles of wine every month. In general, I think how we drink, there's not a lot of good education on how the things that come to us are up and down the food web, but especially in how we drink, how the things that come to us are different from they have been in the past and how like the whole shape of the beverage industry is always in flux and always changing. It's like scotch only exists as we know it now from the 1960s. The first age statement scotch was like Macallan 8, I believe, in like 1962. People just didn't drink scotch or whiskey at all like we drink it now. The same mm-hmm. thing with wine. When California first really came onto the market and started transforming how people thought wines should be, it was like these really big, bold reds in the 1970s. And the whole European wine making world was like, oh my God, what, what do we do now? Like, this is so <laughs> different. Like, the things that the market's asking for are so different than what we've been providing. So, there's yeah. sort of like this transformation. In the United States, we have a long history of using chemicals to help our things grow better and so Mm -hmm. words like organic and biodynamic really came into being because the way that we farm in the united states is really sad and unfortunate but a lot of like family farmers who go back like four or five six seven generations whether in like south america or europe will be like "Uh, we've been what you now call biodynamic for the entire time you put what into your soil and why do you do Mm. that so we don't, we, we're not specifically organic necessarily. We're not specifically biodynamic, but we look for like the world of wine is changing. Climate change has already radically impacted how people grow and the ways they grow mm-hmm. and the way they think about growing. So we're particularly interested in organic, biodynamic, not as marketing terms, but how people are thinking about the way that they grow grapes. So people who do non-interventionists, like they don't even till the soil or people who are like, we have one Fraga de Corvo it celebrates the crows. The crows every year come in and eat about a third of the grapes of this particular vineyard. And that helps the grapes that do remain to take on a particularity that's could only really be found where they are. Makes a really beautiful wow. and sumptuous wine. Um, so like, yeah, rather than trying to keep these birds away, we understand that they're part of the whole process of making the thing that we actually make. So we're really interested in the future of what the world of wine is looking like. And that's based on how people are farming and it's based on how people are using the native yeast that are around them. And that's based on how people are trying to transform the plots of white land that they have for the betterment of the world, because terroir is really important. Mm-hmm. I mean, humans are a tremendously yeah. important part of terroir. 
and the terroir can only be good and healthy if humans recognize that we're part of the world rather than standing apart and above it. So that's kind of what we try to look for and aim for in our wine club. That's amazing. I definitely need to pick up a bottle of that crow appreciation wine because <laughs> there was one this summer that was so loud and really, really tested the limits of my crow love. But um, yes, we're all we're all living here together, and some of us just need some wine to get through it. <laughs> hey, the crows do too. Birds love wine. They usually get it in like the still in one piece wine, but yeah. <laughs> I wanted to say just quickly that I love the vibe in your place. You know, yeah. I think online it's been written as sometimes has a dive vibe. And that could be a positive in Seattle because Seattle loves its dive bars and, and they're kind of a dying breed, actually. I didn't so much get the dive vibe as I got the living room of some really nice, cool people you want to have a conversation with. Yeah. Um, totally. And that's more what I got from it. It almost reminded me of like being in college and like just some cool books on the shelf and like, you know, eight different people's kind of ideas of living together, like communal living in intellectual spirit, for sure, I could feel. And just listening to you, I know you're a PhD. It shows. I mean, just listening to you talk about food, it's not food, it's not drink, it's history, it's culture, it's people, it's systems, economic systems, it's it's all of it. And I think that any of our listeners who, who really like you know, any issues from, you know, climate change to sustainable agriculture to, you know, obviously different ways of setting up a restaurant to just banging cocktails uh, <laughs> are really going to enjoy coming down to Jude's and, and visiting it. I, I really enjoyed it so much that I, I, I definitely am going to be a regular. So thank you. That's so delightful. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm with Becky. I also was kind of getting like a slightly like spooky vibe in there. I mean, maybe it was because one of the books that we noticed on the book rack next to us was Obituary Cocktails. And so we were wondering, well, what's that about? And have you had any like ghost encounters in your space? We're hoping one day for a, doesn't even have to be a quality ghost experience, just any type of ghost yeah. experience. <laughs> I think that that obituary book, I've had that for a little while before Jude's, and it was really important in my understanding of what is important about New Orleans. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of times when people will set up a Cajun Creole restaurant, there'll be a lot of purple and green mm. and pictures of New Orleans. Alligators throwing beads at you. Yeah. You're <laughs> like, okay, sure. That's exciting. Mm -hmm. And everyone loves all that. The dazzle, the rizzle, bizzle, whatever. <laughs> but if you, if you look at an obituary cocktail and it's all these pictorial history of, or experience tourism guide, I guess you could say what you wanted, of bars and restaurants in New Orleans. And you don't find any of that in these bars. What you do find are floors that millions of people have walked on, bars that millions mm. of people have cried on or loved on. Puked on. Puked on, definitely. <laughs> you find the joy and the anger and the emotions of like hundreds of years. And when we were first starting to put the place together, it's like the reason we get all of our decorations come from antique stores or plants is because they're living. Like the, each of these things has a history and each of them has experience that goes beyond any particular person uh, it goes beyond being made rapidly in China and then shipped over in a box. It's this real world experience of people having lived a life. And so all the things that we have try to express in so many words or without any words that. And so you ask about ghosts and it's like, we don't have like a 
ghost necessarily, but we hope that we're haunted by the past because we're always haunted by the past. The past constructs the world we live in today. And if we want to understand how to make the world different, we have to understand that world that has been in order to bring something other into the world that we have been gifted with. That that's the way that people necessarily want to think about it. Here I was thinking, like, is it haunted? And then you so eloquently explained, like, like, how it's this experience. Keith is like, boo! Yeah. And Mark just gave us, like, a treatise. That's one of my biggest downfalls, so I apologize. (laughs) (laughs) No, I love it. I never claimed to be a PhD, so, you know, here we go. Well, now that we've gotten that important question out of the way, let's get to some other ones. We do this thing called Hot Takes, where we hit you with these yes or no, A or B sort of quick take questions, and you just tell us which one, and you can say why if you want to, but it's like a kind of like a rapid fire, like boom, chicka, boom, boom, sort of let's get through this sort of thing. And Becky, do you want to do you want to lead the hot takes or take turns or how let's do you want to do Let's take turns. Let's okay. switch off. Okay, I'll start. Okay, hot takes with Mark Paschal from Jude's Old Town in Rainier Beach. Uh, bourbon or rye? Rye. Oh, love it. <laughs> is there a particular rye that is your go-to, Mark? I really love Stellum rye. I think also Doc Swinson, who are based in Ferndale, have a really delightful rye. Uh, mm-hmm. Stellum is these people who go to distilleries and look for like, barrels of whiskey to buy and they age it. And like, collectively, they have some like 200 years of experience in the whiskey industry. Mm-hmm. They just make a really fantastic one. Redwood Empire out of Sonoma, I think, also has a really tremendous rye. One of the things I really like about them is that a dollar for every bottle they sell goes to Redwood Reforestation. All mm. of the marketing on their labels itself are about particular old old school, old old redwoods. Um, so <laughs> them thinking about their place, like with the water rights that you have to have for distillery and whatnot, and thinking about like how they're interacting with the world, I think is really nice. Mm-hmm. I know whiskey is very good as well. That's cool. Old school trees. I kind of like that term. And I, I have to say also that when my husband and I sat down in Jude's, the water bottle was an, an old Dickel bottle. We were like, we're home. This is our home. <laughs> okay, back to the hot takes. A cherry or twist? Ooh, cherry or twist. A good twist. Okay. Rainier or Manny's? Manny's. I- Manny's. It's one of the problems that I have is like Rainier. I love the history. I love who they are and where they've been. I don't love who they are. I love where they've been. I love right. that one of uh, the people who is a semi-regular, his grandfather was the master brewer for wow. Rainier back in the day. Mm-hmm. Rainier is owned by a massively large corporation that houses some like yeah. 380 of these like local low-tier beers and it's hard yeah. to be excited about massive yeah. corporations buying places in cities based on legacy beers i'll still drink it but it's not exciting it's rainier of yesteryear that we all kind of have a special place in our hearts for, I, or some i will for. always remember the motorcycle ad rainier. <laughs> uh, <but> yes <laughs> all right shaken or stirred Mr. Bond. Well, unfortunately, that very much depends on the cocktail. I mm-hmm. in the summer I will go shaken, and a fall in the winter I will go stirred. Chicory or chocolate? Chocolate. Crystal or Tabasco? Crystal. There's not oh. no choice for me. Are, are you a Tabasco person? Ah, uh, huge Tabasco fan. I find it so lacking in depth compared to Crystal. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> I, I like mean, both, but I, I've been, I grew up with Tabasco. It's a nostalgic sure. thing for me. It's, you can't, you can't compete with someone's childhood memories. Like, yeah. do you know what I mean? Like there's a depth of flavor that your brain adds and layers on with memory that literally that other person isn't tasting. And I, I, I believe that in my core. So if I was tasting Tabasco for the first time today, I'd be like, this is just vinegary, mm. just sharp and not a lot of depth. But because it reminds me of my dad, you can't tell me it's not the best hot sauce out there. <laughs> that is 100% fair. And that's, I think, one of the fantastic things about taste and flavor and experiencing that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Crystal is kind of like the official hot sauce of the South, right? Of New Orleans. Yes. Or is that that's true? Well, Tabasco is too. I mean, it's, it's, it's right a, up there. It's, it's, I went and visited, you know, the Tabasco plant, which isn't really a plant in Avery Island, Louisiana. And mm. it was a special experience for me. Yes. Cool. But. Pumpkin or corn? <sighs> Seasonal favorites. Oh, stumper, stumper uh, keys. Corn. You stumped them. Be uh, he didn't sound confident. Well, this again is I, I relate most flavors to cocktails. And I just made, re-upped our batch of uh, corn hatch chili syrup. Very oh. excited about. I love that. Oh, it's in our hatching so plan good. right now. But I also can't wait for the medley of pumpkin and squashes that we're going to be using for the uh, egg white cocktail that will be coming out in a couple of mm. weeks. So right now it will be corn. After we've made the syrup, it might be pumpkin. That but, is a valid um, answer. No, actually, it's not. You have to pick one for life. <laughs> for life? Oh, corn. No, it's Keith is always seasonal. easier. I've He's heard always that about easier Keith. on our guests than I am. <laughs> uh, I'm strictly vegetable binary here. <laughs> it's the only time I'll accept the binary. Uh, if it's for life, it's corn. That's not even really close. Okay. Settled. Happy now, <laughs> Becky? I am. Okay, good. Uh, this might be a tough one. Gumbo or jambalaya? Mm, jambalaya. It's more difficult to do in a restaurant experience. So if you get jambalaya, it's because someone made it with love. I mean, the gumbo is obviously made with love too, but that can be prepped in large quantities. And jambalaya, because it's mm. a rice dish, just can't be. So fair enough. Flounder or catfish? Catfish. There's nothing better than a good fried catfish. Uh, Becky, didn't you have some catfish? It was it was amazing. The the light batter on that, and I know other people have mentioned this, but I had to experience it myself to really appreciate to to make a fried food seem light. It takes skill, and that you guys nailed your fried catfish. Our back of house are tremendous people. Yeah, that batter was great. It wasn't <laughs> heavy. I didn't feel like I had just eaten something fried. I, I felt felt good. Fantastic. Uh, Becky, you want to jump in and take yeah. some leads All and right. hot takes? Here we go. You, you know what a hard ass I am, so uh -huh. get ready. <laughs> be ready. Halloween or Mardi Gras? Unfortunately, it's going to be Halloween just because I've never been to Mardi Gras. Uh, Seattle used to have a really, I think, the second biggest Mardi Gras in the country until the city council at the time helped shut that down. It's one of the things mm. that the historical that. legacies yeah. of Seattle city councils, they liked the anti-dancing of the 1990s, criminalizing yeah. teens, it's all based on teen homelessness and other things like that in the 90s. So Halloween has been Damn. much more my experience, but I love Mardi Gras. I love the idea behind Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras in some of the South American countries, I think would be beyond yeah. hmm. anything that I have ever experienced and would love to go there one day. Ghosts or goblins? Ghosts. Yeah, I think I knew that one. Tricks or treats? <laughs> 
Uh, it's treats. I don't like the world of tricks. <laughs> <laughs> Stepping away from Halloween themes, Burian or Edmonds? Burian. I don't have a lot of experience with Edmonds, to be fair. Edmonds said the same thing about you. <laughs> <laughs> Edmonds has some great dim sum. Really? Yeah. There's dim sum by my house that I think is really fantastic. Do you live in Rainier Beach, by the way? I live in uh, what's called Brighton, which is between Hillman City and Rainier Beach. White Center or Wallingford? White Center. White Center. White Center is the future of Seattle food. This is interesting. Keith comes up with most of this list, and I always am sometimes like, oh, <laughs> Hank Williams. Like, just curious how this one got on here. Hank Williams or Roger Whitaker? I have to say I'm not too familiar with Roger Whitaker. I don't know Roger Whitaker either. He just died. I'm oh. Sorry to hear that. He he does these Maybe. like these kind of like, he was like an early sea shanty sort of type oh. person. Oh. Um, he's got this deep voice and sings these songs about the sea and... You know, I guess it's sort of like a surf and turf choice there. Hank oh, Williams, I Roger like it. Whittaker. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm going to look him up. I'm going to go Hank then. Yeah. <laughs> Keith, back to you. Sex Pistols or The Clash? I think The Clash. I feel like I, I will never forget the experience of seeing a Clash song in a Jaguar commercial. And that's been something <laughs> that has kind of stuck with me for a long time. Yeah. Um, so I would probably go. Sex Pistols. There's too much fascist adjacent <laughs> paraphernalia in their world mm-hmm. for me to really yeah. be fully on board. I would mm-hmm. go with the subhumans if given the ability to say a third. Okay. Yeah. I I will accept that, Becky. Yes, silent. I will. <laughs> no, I I have I've <laughs> subhuman. I'm keeping you guessing. I'm changing my tune. Speaking of fascist organizations, Seahawks or Sounders? <laughs> <laughs> uh well, as much as I wish I could say the Sounders, the Seahawks have been such a part of my life for I was born in 77 during like the 2004 2005 years my heart rate quickens when they play (laughs) and I am a much better and more well-rounded person now such that I can watch a game with a certain amount of remove Hmm. I had a lot of difficulty doing that during like the 2010 to 2014 era I <laughs> don't have the capability to speak on Sounders eras other than to note their overall excellence for a very long time. I love going to Sounders matches. Uh, but like many terrible people in this city and its surroundings, I am a Seahawks person. That's okay. It's okay. <laughs> so am I. It's confusing, isn't it? You know, as a as a punk kid, you're like, it's hard to the whole sporting events is something that you enjoy. And I was lucky enough to find when I went to school in California, some other punk and post hardcore kids who were really into their teams. And so it felt like a, it, it didn't feel like I was an ogre enjoying mm-hmm. these things. I still do to some ways. Yeah. Life is not a binary adventure. When you witness someone like DK Metcalf, the things yes. that that man can do are yes. something like, how this? You watch someone who is like the top maybe 30 person in the world doing what they're doing. And we don't get to watch that outside of sports. I don't get to see like a top 30 bartender in the world. I mean, I think that I do because we have mirrors, but in general. <laughs> <I think. laughs> my my wife and I have a DK Metcalf pass. Do you? Um, I mean, he'll never be interested in, in me, but. All types of things happen in this world. Just to know I have the DK pass yeah. that I could use Tremendous. if the opportunity ever presented itself. <laughs> That's how much I love him. 
I mean, I love him. Yes. I'm rooting for you, for your heart's <laughs> desires to come true. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Get it, girl. <laughs> showbox at the market or Showbox Soto? I know more people who work at Soto probably, but all the places I used to go are the Redmond Firehouse and the mm. Y in Bellevue and the Velva Elvis and Rock Candy. None of those places exist. So I never yeah. went to shows at the Showbox when I was young and I moved back and I had kids and a bartending job. So I don't. Yeah, <laughs> to get out very much either there. As an institution, I love the Showbox, and I'd probably say Showbox Market. It's a magical place. How old are your kids? Rosa will be six on October eighth, and then Nat turns nine in January. Good ages. Oh Those my god, ages. tremendous! So much personality, and then when they, when you see yourself in them, it's largely because of the terrible things. You're like, oh my god, do I yell? Shit. I need to reevaluate how I'm parenting. (laughs) I'm waiting for Becky to ask you, Rosa or Nat? (laughs) (laughs) You monster. I never would. I would never say that, but Becky. But really, Rosa. No, 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 no. They're they're both wonderful. How about uh, hunting or fishing? Fishing. I've never been hunting. Mm -hmm. Nat has gotten the taste for fishing in the last six months and so it's been really delightful to experience that with him i haven't been fishing in like 30 years so you had to brush up <laughs> like i think i know what a hook is <laughs> <laughs> all right there's one left and it's becky's go for it last one old bay or zatarans mm, i was really hoping for the lake ocean question oh uh, <laughs> oh oh we can give it to you yeah lake tell ocean. us tell us lake versus ocean i'm gonna go mountain lake I love the ocean. I think the ocean is such a tremendous experience. Ocean versus mountain is always a crux. And being in Seattle where you can kind of have both is really delightful. But being on a mountain ocean, a mountain ocean, a mountain lake. I love that you prepared for the show by listening to our hot takes from another episode. That makes me feel really nice. That question was on like almost every episode. And I was like, I I think I know where I'm going. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> okay so old bay or zatarans and have you used both do you know Oof. probably old bay yeah. so do you guys use either one in your restaurant i've used old bay in cocktails before so that's why and what do you guys use do you guys make your own mixes back there yeah i don't pay too much attention these days to what the kitchen is doing on the, like this spice mm-hmm. blend you would have to ask someone sometimes it's more fun to be ignorant <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I certainly feel enlightened after our chat with you today. Uh, it was such a pleasure getting to know you better and learn more about the backstory of Jude's. What you're doing there is really, really cool. And I hope a lot of people follow your model for success and for delicious cocktails as well. I mean, everything that we had actually there was really, really wonderful. So congrats on really making something special in our community here. It's really wonderful and appreciated. And it was great to learn more about it directly from you. And we should probably clarify, it's Jude's Old Town, right? Yeah, we've kind of taken to dropping the Old Town off more often. Oh, have you? Okay. Apparently it's a real estate, sort of like a, we didn't know this at the time, but it's kind of like a real estate marketing term in order to mm. give Rainier Beach a bit more of like a bougie past, I think. Gotcha. So, I, so do you guys refer to yourself as just Jude's? Just Jude's or Jude's and Rainier Beach. Just Jude's. We really okay. love Rainier Jude's Beach. And I think Rainier Beach is, uh, I couldn't be happier being in Rainier Beach. I think people on, on the South Side in general, but especially in Rainier Beach are such tremendous people. So yeah. Thank you. I'm a, I'm a South Beacon Hill girl myself. Hell yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> Hell yeah. It just took me five minutes to get to your place and I'm going to be coming back. Uh, as long as you come back, that's the important part. Thank you all so much. I love listening to the show and it's been a really tremendous experience to be on it. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for being here and we'll see you soon. That sounds great. Should we just get a date on the calendar to go back to Jude's and Rainier Beach now because I I mean we we only did a little dent in the menu yes. of both the drinks and the food and there's so much more I want to go back and explore. Well, also I found out that my neighbor works there so there's oh, that, really? there's that connection but wow. also but then the second thing is when he mentioned the corn hatch chili syrup for yeah. cocktails I was like I am so going to be a barfly there and sit at that <laughs> counter and I want to be in the obituary Seattle book of the future because mm-hmm. <laughs> I will have spent many a day laying on that bar just as he talked about. Yeah, I need to go back also for the corn cocktail, but because uh, I recently had a not good corn cocktail at a place I will not mention, um, but it was like a corn martini and the server actually said, you know, when I was asking about it, I'm like, I'm, I'm so intrigued by this. And and she said, well, no one ever orders a second one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love the honesty. Yeah. It was, and so I'm like, well, okay, well, then I'll just get the one. And I had the one. And it, it was more about like there was like a grainy yeah. sort of texture to it that wasn't that good. And I also think as a martini, it didn't work. So was it a creamed corn martini? It was not cream, but you know, it was, this was just a, a couple weeks ago. So, you know, we're at peak corn, you know, mm-hmm. and it was just like corn, this corn, that, I, like, let's try it. And, um, and my, my friend that I was with also, we were less like that, that didn't work at all. Oh, so I'm wow. excited for, for corn to be redeemed as a cocktail ingredient, hopefully at Jude's in Rainier Beach. I'll see you there. I'll be at the bar. Okay. Save me a seat. That's it for this episode of Field to Fork, but before you go, I have a little favor to ask. First, make sure you're following us on your podcast player so you don't miss an episode. And it would be like handing me a freshly steamed cluster of Dungeness Crab if you shared this episode with your circle of family and friends, or even just one person who you know loves learning about our Pacific Northwest food scene. So go ahead and make my day. Field to Fork is a Made with Bacon production, all rights reserved. Interviews have been edited for brevity and clarity. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram, where our handle is Field to Fork Podcast. I'm Keith Bacon. Thanks for listening.